do and welcome to Pablo's Vault of Horror, the podcast. Uh, this is a companion podcast to the Pablo's Vault of Horror radio show, which is every Wednesday, 10pm till midnight on Nova Radio Northeast. Uh, you can find that at novaradio.co.uk or if you're lucky enough to live in the northeast of England, 102.5 FM in the Newcastle Gated area. Um, there's also an app, Nova Radio app, and you can find us on your streaming things, you know, your little autonomous butler speaker that you've got in your house. Uh, just ask for it to play Nova Radio NE and you'll get me if you do that at 10pm on a Wednesday um, there or you'll probably get the news for a bit and then me but uh, I digress um, anyway on the show I like to play horror related music and we do horror news reviews and interviews and those interviews when I'm lucky enough to get them I like to put out as a podcast which is why we're here um, now recently I was lucky enough to speak to two authors um, both have books out uh, available for Christmas so I thought I'd put this out as a double episode uh, so first off we're going to have a chat with uh, Rob Kilburn a documentarian and author as, as mentioned um, he's the man behind the Tyne and Weird I said weird uh, Facebook page and um, if you go there there's lots of uh, content about the weird and wonderful uh, area that, uh, that I live in um, you may not live in there but uh, you might want to find out a little bit about it. Um, you often find these uh, kind of historical books about, and they're often a bit dry, but this one really gets into the nitty-gritty and some really peculiar and odd things to be found in there. So we'll be talking to Rob Kilburn. Um, as I say, he doesn't have a Twitter page per se, but you can find him on Facebook page, Tiny Weird, and he's very responsive. So uh, we'll get into that in a moment. And then afterwards, we're going to have a chat with Matt Glasby. Um, he's available at Matt Glasby, um, M-A-T-T-G-L-A-S-B-Y, uh, and also on at The Book of Horror. The reason he's available on The Book of Horror is he has a book out called The Book of Horror, The Anatomy of Fear on Film, uh, which is a great book. I've been pouring over it over the last few days and uh, can't recommend it enough. He's a uh, a writer for lots of uh, different publications and he's got a few books to his name and this is his most recent one so uh, we'll speak to him after Rob but first I'll take you to me and Rob Kilburn um, documentarian and the man behind Tyne and Weird available in all good bookshops mostly Amazon And also no swearing, that is one thing I forgot to say. <laughs> um, thanks, Pablo. Uh, Rob Kilburn is a local documentarian and author from Sunderland who runs the Facebook and YouTube pages Tyne and Weird. Uh, the focus on the weird and wonderful urban legends, folklore and strange history of the North East. His documentaries are focused on subjects as wide ranging as graffiti, paranormal investigators, rave music, parkour and more, all from the local area. Uh, he has a new book due out soon, Tyne and Weird, that's out, um, uh, well, at the start of November. And to talk about it, he joins me now. Hello, Rob. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having us. Not a problem. Um, now, I made an attempt in the intro to describe the Tyne and Weird Facebook and YouTube account. Um, how would you yourself describe it and how did you first come about it? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a pretty big um, umbrella, really. There's a lot of falls under it. Um, you've got uh, the documentaries, as you say, um, sort of collections of strange local stories, um, bits of artwork as well. Um, and I suppose it really came about by sort of finding these strange stories. Um, some of them were sort of 
too old to turn into documentaries. Some of them are like you're talking a couple of centuries old. Um, and it's it's hard to make a documentary on something like that when there's no sort of images or video. Um, but the stories themselves were fascinating enough to be shared. So it kind of just grew out of that. Well, that's it. And I find, I mean, I've followed the page for a couple of years now and just some of the um, kind of like random things that you would think would be more commonly known. Um, I mean, as I say, I think there was a bit more about it after you, I'd seen it on your page, but uh, it was a gentleman who um, uh, was basically living off grid in, in Durham and um, kind of took, uh, well, I think shot and injured some uh, news reporter in the area, which... Um, you know, as I say, I'd never even heard about it. You'd think something like that would have been quite common knowledge. Um, and uh, I think it was the, the local, I think the, the Tyne Tees, was it Tyne Tees? Um, I think they ran a story about it on the anniversary, but uh, I think you had the uh, the scoop for me, that was anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of bits of history like that that have just been forgotten about or overlooked or never even sort of shared publicly and sometimes sometimes. Yeah, now, uh, your scope is wide, as you say, but often weird. Is there any story you found in the research for the Facebook page or the book um, that was 100% true, but just really hard to get your head around and, and, and believe? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of lots when it comes to that. I mean, some stories, um, a lot of people know some stories are news. And I mean, one that was news to me was um, the merry widow of uh, Windy Nook, who was a, a sort of woman serial killer who I think killed about um, perhaps three or four husbands, um and yeah i mean she was just a, a character in some of the things that she'd say um she sort of poisoned them which i think when when you talk about sort of uh, that sort of killer from the northeast i think um probably the one that's to mind but recently mary Wendy you and that for me was just a, a bit of a, a bit of a bizarre thing to try and wrap my head around yeah now you say so the book's out uh, at the beginning of november what was the date again sorry that's right, yeah. So it comes out November 2nd. Um, we can pre-order it at Waterstones and um, Amazon and, and the like um, now. Oh, excellent. Um, now, um, obviously, the Facebook page and the YouTube page have been around for a, um, a, a few years now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, when did you decide to start the book or was it always kind of like a, a view to, to doing a book or did it just, just come about naturally? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the reasons I started 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 sharing the stories was um, to uh, sort of build a platform really for the documentaries, which was something um, I was particularly passionate about. Um, but as as it sort of went on, as I was gathering more and more of these stories, I thought this would make a, a fantastic book. I didn't think there was much else out there like it, um, and yeah, it's it sort of. Yeah. I mean, one thing I do know my own experience and things like that is there any kind of like local history book whatever kind of concept or whatever kind of area it's touching on they seem to be the ones that they really do quite well um whether you're from the area yourself or whether it's a, a gift for somebody who hails from the area or something that you always see them about um so i think um i'm hoping that great guns for yourself for that one yeah me too <laughs> um, now it touched on your documentary work uh, in the start and obviously you just mentioned it there uh, now do you have a do you have to have a passion for the subject that you're doing the documentary on um, before you do the, the documentary itself? Or is it just a general passion for documenting local history and people? Um, it's sort of a mix between uh, love and the North East and wanting to put that in the spotlight. And sometimes just things that gen generally interest me. I mean, um, for example, I'm not a graffiti artist, but I've always wondered how this graffiti gets in such strange places. And more recently, we did one on um, people who monitor illegal fox hunts that go on in the Northeast. And I mean, I'm not um, 
uh, I'm, I'm, that's sort of not certainly not my area of expertise, but it's something that I find interesting in the what drives the characters in these sort of scenes. Um, so yeah, I think that plays a big part in it. Yeah, and that's their red coats, isn't it? If I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, that was released um, earlier this year. Yeah, no, it's it. Um, I had a, a brief delve into that this morning, but a bit more of a, a skim than anything else. But I will uh, definitely have a have a check up on those. Um, so uh, as I say, the the books are due out soon. Um, and obviously, with that being the case, I haven't had a chance to look at it myself. Um, uh, now, the Facebook page has been going um, for that long. And um, the YouTube page, did you do them both at the same time? Or was it kind of like Facebook first and then the YouTube page itself? Yeah, so YouTube came about first, actually. Um, I'd actually just gotten um, a dog called Betty, who was a, a little fat pug. So I originally started off being called Fat Dogs. And I thought, Ring to it, the time it did I kind of merged the two together, um, and yeah. kind of weird became like a, a single entity. Oh, well, that's it. I suppose you can have it all under the same umbrella, so we, you know, and especially, I suppose, as as you as you say, because the scope's quite wide and varied, you can kind of like uh, chuck it all in, and it's not really something to, to question because it's it's all you know, um, you know, I would say the Sunderland Rave scene is certainly something that was uh, you know, from, from an outside perspective, quite weird <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Um, now, one of the other things I noticed is that you're, you're currently working on a uh, documentary about the Sunderland punk scene as well. Um, now, is there any information on that that you can give? Yeah, so um, it, it's not just Sunderland, it's going to be the whole northeast. Um, looking at sort of DIY venues, you had places like the station um, in Gateshead, the bunker in Sunderland, uh, the garage in Newcastle, but also um, sort of venues throughout the years. I mean, places like the Riverside. Uh, Manakey and sort of important gigs that happened here and bands that came from the area because we've had some fantastic talent visit and we've had some fantastic talent sprout out of our uh, soil, if you like. Well, that's it. And you find this, uh, I mean, obviously not, not necessarily punk, but you find some quite uh, important either first or early gigs or, you know, uh, that, that uh, kind of um, made a name for a lot of artists in this country uh, kind of start in Newcastle. I mean, I think you've got like Nirvana at uh, the Mayfair, I think when they played and um, Oasis's gig at the Riverside where um, I think somebody chucked a bottle on stage and it was like, leave our kid alone or that, that kind of thing. Um, which kind of like moved into the folklore of the bands themselves, but obviously the region doesn't seem to get any kind of credit for that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean uh, it's a it's a fascinating thing, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that because I do like a do like a bit of punk, a bit more than me rave. I do like a bit of punk, I must say. Um, yeah, you're right there. I think the Riverside in Newcastle was the first venue Nirvana played in the UK, um, which is I mean I think it just we need a bit more recognition, which is something that I'm definitely interested in in sort of uh, pushing for. No, that's it. Well, I myself had a formative experience. I believe uh, I once very drunkenly. Um, casually threatened the lead singer of three colors red it was it was meant to be as a as a positive like you're from the area you need to come up back here and play more often but apparently according to my friend it was more kind of, you better come back thing so and i'm not gonna yeah um now, as I mentioned, um, well, but before we started recording, uh, the, there's um, one of the things that's quite unique about your, your page and some of the stuff that you do on your Etsy store is the, the artwork connected to Tyne and Weird. Uh, can you tell us about who's responsible for that and how you came about getting that sorted? 
Yes, that's a collaboration between myself um, and a local artist, and um, probably the more prominent piece I think that you might be referring to is it, it's sort of inspired by um, Tales from the Crypt. Um, mm. So I'm a big sort of horror fan myself. I love um, anthologies. Um, and I sort of came up with this concept of a sort of Tales from this Crypt inspired piece um, featuring um, sort of local stories on there because you usually get a little bit of a, a sort of circle there which teases some of the stories inside. So, yeah, it was kind of like um, it, it came out of that. And I mean, Dan is just a fantastic um, artist. So it, it's always great working with him. And I mean, we both sort of put our creative input into it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there's there's quite there's quite a few of them that have come out now, and he's actually illustrating um, the the book itself. So he's illustrated the cover, um, and there's illustrations inside as well. So it's a good chance to see some more of his phenomenal work. Oh yeah, it's great. I mean, I must say, um, I, I know obviously you do sell some stuff through your Etsy page, but obviously we'll we'll plug those at the end of the interview. Um, but I, I've seen it's a, a timeout market on a Saturday or Sunday, depending on COVID restrictions and regulations, etc. Um, but yeah, he's got a market stall there, and uh, I must say it's it's definitely something that uh, well, I would like to fill my house with some of that stuff. But unfortunately, there's somebody else who lives in my house who I'd have to convince. Um, <laughs> about so uh, and there's no point buying art if you can't hang it. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm about a year in. I, I think give it another six months, and I might be able to get one like in the in the attic room or something like that. Uh, yeah. If I can convince the missus. Um, now uh, let's have a look here. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, there's been a horror pod, uh, a horror radio show and podcast. I'll obviously, I'll also probably put this interview out as a podcast as well. Um, I have to ask the obvious. Uh, what's your favourite horror movie? Oh, um, I think you can't go wrong with a sort of classic like The Shining or um the exorcist um but i also quite like um sort of jordan peele's work i think get out and us that he recently did or ariaster with um hereditary or midsummer um i know you asked us to choose one but it's, it's too hard yeah no, it's, it's hard at the moment i mean we are kind of in a kind of a new renaissance at the minute a lot of which are kind of directly you know it, it's pretty much mostly down to jordan peele and a24 who mm. like they're, they're you know obviously separately in ariaster and the like but uh but yeah there's definitely a kind of um a force of nature i mean a24 for example the the, the studio there I, I can't think of a single film they've put out that isn't great um and most of those kind of veer on the side of horror so uh so yeah it's it's a we're kind of spoiled for choice at the moment i would think um is there any kind of like say more um um lesser known or kind of a guilty pleasure of the horror i mean i hate using the word guilty pleasure because it's it's all to the individual but uh is there any kind of film that you you like which you don't think gets enough praise oh um no, i'm not entirely sure i mean i like a lot of zombie films i think there's a lot of bad zombie films out there but i do i do like um zombie films so i mean they, they hardly sort of um under praise but i think day of the dead is probably one of my more favorites out of the uh, out of the franchise the sort of of the dead franchise i mean return of the living dead 28 days later that sort of thing well i'm very pleased to hear that uh, somebody else is because uh, i think day of the dead is possibly you know, obviously the the original uh, Night of the Living Dead, you've got to give uh, credit and praise for that. But I think out of all of them, Day of the Dead is probably my favourite. I, I think it's uh, it often would get a bit of a drubbing over the years and uh, a lot of people would say it's it's potentially the worst. But then uh, he, he went on and did more films. So <laughs> the, uh, the title for worst film is is definitely was increased slightly. Um, you know, not, not to knock the gent, but I think uh, he probably should have stopped making 
the the uh, adding to that uh, pantheon mm. of zombie films probably around about the nineties. But uh, but you know that's that's my own personal uh, opinion. Uh, but yeah, a big fan of Bub. In fact, I was even talking earlier with all these um, the doc, uh, new um, productions, prequels, sequels, and a lot of stuff which is working on um, existing properties. I think there's a you know there's a, a new Lord of the Rings series um, coming out from Amazon, for example. And I think something like uh, Bub, you know, focusing on that character, I would love to see what happened to Bub. And what he did next, you know, you could have like a day after the day after the dead or whatever, you know, it's uh, it would be a, an interesting one. And, you know, you've got Cobra Kai, they made that. I thought that was a joke when I first heard about it. And that's people seem to love that. So, you know, I think a bub one off focusing solely on him would be an excellent one. I know I'd definitely watch it. I'd like to see how he got into the lab. Um, I think that would be an interesting story, how he became a zombie and how he got into the uh, into the lab itself with the doctor. We could either do it as like either as a series or, you know, maybe a, a trilogy you can have before, during from his perspective. And then after, I, I think, uh, you know, definitely. Uh, for, I've interviewed a few directors um, over the over the couple of years I've been doing this radio show. So I think I'll, I'll, um, I'll send out a few missives to them to see if they can get their hands on the property. Um, I think it'll be a, a good one, personally. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Dawn of the Bub has a good ring to it as well. Yeah, yeah, Dawn of the Bug. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I was say we could copyright it, but uh, I don't know who owns the property. I think I'm sure Tom Savini's got some sort of connection to it now. Uh, four kind of like main um, names in horror, I would probably say are yeah, kind of Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, and Leatherface. Um, so what I like to do, well, I suppose you call it a. Um, um, I was going to. That's Statue in America, which has got all the faces. Mount Rushmore, that's it. The Mount Rushmore of horror. Um, but if, say, for example, only one of them um, could stay and you had to get rid of the other three, out of those, Jason, Freddy, Michael and Leatherface, um, which one would you keep and which three would you consign to the dustbin of history? Oh, um, see, I've only quite recently started getting into the Halloween films. Um, I watched the... Uh... The, I enjoyed the first Rob Zombie one, but I wasn't too keen on the second one. Um, but I think the, the recent one where sort of Jamie Lee Curtis has made a return, I think it looks like they might even be set up for another two or three coming out. So yeah, there's, there's definitely two. I think the film in, um, I think the finished, at least one of them, if not both. Um, but yeah, and I think a uh, fair play on the Rob Zombie one, because it gets it gets a little bit of shtick, because it, it, it is quite long um and it does focus very much on the kind of upfront type of thing um but I, I really thought that was good i think some of the kind of like grittier grimier remake and the the evil and um i think a lot of people kind of unfairly malign them just because they they weren't original pieces um and yeah, I mean, I must say, like Evil Dead, I, I will um, personally, I really like that film. I think it's kind of like, you know, everybody's got a lot of love for Sam Raimi and the Evil Dead series of films. But I think that concept with the humour, which is kind of unique to Raimi and Bruce Campbell and the like, if you remove that, it's it's such a kind of compelling, terrifying story. And I think they did that really well um, with uh, Evil Dead. That's uh, that's kind of the one that I look for. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they, until very recently, had the record for the amount of fake blood used in any film. Um, they had, like, I think it was the equivalent of, um, like, three Olympic swimming pools worth um, or, or something to that regard. So it's, uh, 
Yeah, uh, definitely one. Um, now, uh, speaking of your kind of your, your remakes and your reimaginings and the like, is there any kind of property that you think is, you know, ripe for a remake uh, from the horror genre or, or, or further afield? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we've seen a bit of a, I mean, for, for I think it must be the third or fourth time now, the Twilight Zone's been rebooted with Jordan Peele hosting it. Um, I think even a potential... Um, you know, movie would be something that I'd be uh, sort of quite interested in. I think Creepshow, I mean, we've seen a Creepshow series come out on Shudder quite recently. I think I'd like to see um, a sort of uh, another film of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've, they've tried to remake Day of the Dead twice now, I think, and it just, it's it's lost uh, it's lost its meaning for me in terms of having something to hope for that, that we'll get a good Evil Dead remake, uh, sorry, a good uh, Day of the Dead remake. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the line I would go down. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, it's there's there's plenty of things out there which I think you know are, are ripe for it. But then I suppose it's uh, you know we do want some original concepts out there. But uh, but yeah, um, but as I say, I think uh, we're both agreed that the a, a kind of bub focused uh, Day of the Dead spin off would be would be ideal. So uh, that's that's the that's the way now. It's more spin offs than remakes, isn't it? So we'll we'll stick with that. I think. Um, Right now, um, obviously, as we say, we've uh, talked about the the Facebook page and the YouTube page and the the Etsy account and the and the like. Where's the best place to find you? What's the um the the deets for all that? Yes, so um, you can get us on sort of Facebook, uh, just Tyne and Wade, YouTube under the same name, um, and yeah, I think if you search us on Etsy, Tyne and Wade should should come up there as well. Yeah, I'm not mistaken. I think there's there's links on both the YouTube and the Facebook for that as well. Um, but yeah, you'd be able to have a look at some of those uh, prints that I mentioned, uh, which are great. I mean, just um, just for those, and uh, I think uh, some of them yourself for just ten pounds a piece. So uh, would be uh, very very worthwhile. Uh, a bit of adventure along that way. Um, right. Well, um, it's just say thank you very much for your time. Uh, I think we'll round up now if that's okay. Um, now, is there anything else that, um, aside from the book, obviously, um, I'll give you a bit of time to, to plug that, but um, is there anything else that's coming up? I know you've got the punk documentary, um, but is there anything in the kind of like concept stage that you're working on? Yeah, I think it's a bit hard at the moment, given the sort of um, pandemic. I'm trying not to bite off more than I can chew, if you like. Um, but yeah, I think at the moment, things are just running, focusing on the book and this punk documentary. Um, and with that being out soon, it's just a lot of work around sort of publicity and things like that as well. Well, grand, grand. Uh, well, hopefully we can get some sort of um, anthology type zombie Day of the Dead yeah. remake on the way. Um, but uh, but in the meantime, um, just like to say thank you very much uh, for speaking to me today, Rob. Thank and uh, say get yourselves along to Facebook and YouTube and uh, get yourself along to Watson's to pick up the book, Tyne and Weird. And that's out the 2nd of November. So uh, as uh, Rob was saying there, just get your pre-orders in. So uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll speak again in the not too distant future. Yeah, thank you. All right. See you, Rob. Bye. Something again. Thank you, Pablo. Uh, joining me tonight, I have Matt Glasby. Uh, Matt writes articles for Total Film, GQ, Radio Times, and uh, more. He's also got three books out to his name, uh, A to Z of Great Film Directors, uh, last year's Brit Pop Cinema, From Train Spotting to This Is England, and the new released The Book of Horror, The Anatomy of Fear in Film. Um, obviously, uh, this being Pablo's Vault of Horror, we'll be talking mostly about his GQ output, 
Um, but we might as well uh, chat about the book as it's out. So uh, joining me tonight, I have Matt Glasby. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me, Pablo. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for agreeing to uh, join me here on the Vault of Horror. Um, now, as I did mention, uh, we've got the, the book out. And, um, you know, it, it's been out for a, a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, how's it been going with the release? It's It's been going great. It's really hard to tell at the moment because of COVID. So, I mean, I've never, I haven't been into a bookshop to see it yet, which is a shame. But it's doing really well on Amazon and um, speaking to lots of nice people in the horror community and getting all right reviews. So, can't complain. Yes, well, I must say, I, I myself uh, very much enjoyed it. I, I was able to uh, pour over it in preparation for this interview and, uh, yes, very much enjoyed it. Now, with, with the book, um, now, it, it's generally just a kind of, your um, reviews of certain films of horror, which you kind of have decided kind of pinpoint certain aspects of horror, or um, maybe with you writing the book, you might be best uh, describing this. How would you describe the, the book in, in, in essence? So the book is an in-depth illustrated guide to the scariest films ever made. And that last point is really important. This isn't the most historically interesting. This isn't the biggest budget or, or whatever. This is not a history of horror. These are the films that are, are the scariest ever made. And in order to, to sort of show their, um, they've earned, a lot of them to earn their place in this book, I've come up with a system I call scare tactics, which is seven different ways that films try and scare us. Yes, um, now I was going to mention in regards to the scare tactics, uh, uh, it's it's quite interesting that how you've kind of broken it down and officially in regards to like fear, especially, and uh, we, we do like to have scary horror films here, horror, um, you know, the early 2000s and whatnot being uh, pushed to the side slightly, although as you have uh, shown in the, in the book, there are some exceptions. Um, now the uh, scare tactics themselves, um, just if you're comfortable running through them, how would you uh, describe each individual one in, uh, I don't know, um, elevator style? <laughs> okay, so an elevator pitch for the seven scare tactics. Okay. Yeah, in, 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 a, in a way, just a descriptive uh, how you describe them and as to why you've basically chosen them. Yeah. Sure. So these are the seven ways that um, films try to use the techniques they used to scare us. Now you could pick things like you could say, oh, we've got jagged editing or, you know, intense music, but all films do that. You know, all films use editing and music to make us feel something. So this is particularly what horror films do. The first is dead space, which is about where the camera is positioned, whether if a subject's really close to the camera, then suddenly things can jump in from around that frame. And if the subject's really far away and there's lots of empty frame, then you suddenly feel like something's going to intrude into that dead space. So that's number one. Number two is more obvious, it's a subliminal, and that's ways that films scare us without us necessarily noticing. So, you know, like there might be like the noise of insects buried somewhere on the soundtrack, and we pick that up, but we don't necessarily recognise it. Scare tactic number three is the unexpected, and that's the way that horror films surprise us. It might be like a jump scare, or it might be like a sudden plot twist, like uh, Marion Crane being killed off in Psycho, something unexpected happening. Number four is the grotesque, which is everything from blood and bodies to creature-esque effects, like stuff that just grosses us out. 
you have, tend to have like a physical response to seeing, say, wounds or things like that. So, you know, it's very similar to being scared. Number five is dread, which is the fear that something bad is going to happen. And actually lots of films, especially ghost stories, don't have very much happening for ages. They just give you that sense that something bad's on its way. Number six, we're rattling through this, aren't we? Number six is the uncanny, which is tends to be like dreamlike, nightmare-like um, imagery where you can't quite tell if something's real or not. There's something not quite right about it. Um, and number seven is the unstoppable, which is the sense that whatever's happening isn't going to resolve. There's not going to be a neat ending. You know, think of Michael Myers getting up at the end of Halloween and, and on and on and on and on in those sequels. You know, horror doesn't give us an easy out. Um, so that's the unstoppable and that's the seven scare tactics and most horror films do most of these things just some of them do more to pick some of them and really go with them so some are like a splatter film it's got loads of the grotesque but probably hasn't got a lot of the dread ghost stories have got lots of dread probably not a lot of the grotesque you know that kind of thing yeah yeah so there's certain ones that kind of put them put themselves up front you know exactly what you're gonna get and uh, then um you know you've got you've got your kind of uh well what I like to subcategorize as your A24 uh, type of film yeah. more recently where you, you know you're going to get something which is going to be unsettling or scary, but you, you've really got no idea before, like unless you've tried to ruin it for yourself in some degree, but you've really got no idea how they're going to do it. Um, whereas, you know, certain ones you, you do know um, kind of what, what's, uh, what's on the door. You can, you can leave your, um, your, thinking, your thinking hat to one side that evening. Exactly. And as I say, most of them do different versions of these things. So something like The Exorcist has got, you know, puke and blood and all that grotesque stuff. But it's also got subliminal inserts of, you know, demon faces and things like that. So there's lots of different things happening. Most successful horror movies are working on lots of different levels to try and scare us. Well, that's it. I mean, William Friedkin, I think he's, um, you know, probably not the the best person to work for. (laughs) No, I suppose that's the, the thing with these those auteur types. He knows exactly what he wants, um, and he, he knows uh, you know certain ways and means that probably aren't legally allowed to be done anymore. But uh, he'll he'll get them done, and uh, you know we're all still talking about his work many many years life, uh, later. So. Yeah, none of these tactics refer to what the director does um, to the actors. That's just between, that's, that's up to them. These are things that are in the film that we can experience as a viewer. Yes, yes, uh, like uh, breaching child labour laws and um, physical assault uh, to, to one side. It's more Your like words, that. Pablo, not my words. Well, well it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a matter of record. Uh, and to be fair, the, the best thing with, uh, with uh, I'll call him Billy, I, I feel we're close enough now. Um, with uh, Billy Friedkin is, you know, it, it's less likely that it'll be litigious, more that you'll just turn up at my door and you know give me a good rollicking. Um, I said rollicking, and uh, yeah. So uh, I think uh, you know if he's, if worse that's going to happen is he's going to come and tell me off. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd quietly be quite happy about that to be honest. I would so. pay quite good money to watch that happen. <laughs> Did you see the um, the updated Commode documentary, um, the Mark Commode documentary? It was like the twenty five year anniversary. Uh, I've seen an iteration of it. I don't know if I've seen the updated version. Well, yeah, we released, uh, re-released because uh, I think there was the original Channel Four or BBC yeah, Two. Uh, I think it was BBC Two uh, when it went out in about nineteen ninety eight or, or thereabouts. Um, 
but uh, the, up until a point, that was like the most complete version out there. And there was lots of different versions, one went over to America and uh, what was agreed after the fact. And uh, But this new one had everything that had been agreed, like everything that was out there up until this point in the different versions and had some additional stuff that he'd, he'd worked. And uh, there was a lo- there's a lovely moment in there where William Friedkin actually gets, you know, somebody, um, I forget the name of the, uh, the author of the book, but he's um, also produced on the film, executive producer, I think. Um, but he was uh, chatting to him and actually finally got through after 50 odd years that, uh, oh, yeah, that actually, that is a good idea. Yeah, why didn't we do that? It was the first time <laughs> I think I've ever seen whether we can actually admit that his, somebody else's idea might have actually been better than his. Um, sadly, the film, you know, had been out for many decades by that point. So it's a bit of a bit of a mute point. But uh, Maybe they've got one more version left in them. Well, that's it. I wouldn't <laughs> these days um but yeah so uh let's have a look here um now obviously uh, one of the things that we uh, did pick up on is the you know you've got some of the classic films out there some um really uh you know real classic uh you know not necessarily uh hammer horror i don't think there's any hammer horror on there um or universal style monsters but there are some older films as well as some the the newer uh, newer films what was it that actually got you to to put it down to what you've got and you know um aside from the the little additions that you've got in each entry uh, for those that are kind of along the same lines um what was kind of left over on the cutting room floor after you've made that whole choice well, it's a, it's a, it's, so there's 136 movies mentioned in the book uh, in detail. And so obviously narrowing down all the films ever made to that point uh, is, is, was a tricky process. I decided to go from after the Second World War. So it's the earliest film is 1945. So I do genuinely believe there are classic films made then. But I think when you watch them now, there is a certain creakiness that's come in that means they're universal films aren't genuinely scary to a modern audience, no reflection on quality. So it started in 1945. Even then, it doesn't really pick up steam until the 60s and 70s. Um, Criteria had to be a proper horror film. It couldn't be, you know, a film that's scary, a kid's film that's scary, a film that's got scary moments. It has to be, like, you know, set out its stall as a proper horror movie. It has to be readily available so that someone picks up the book and they can find this film. It can't be, like, a lost thing or something only available on YouTube. But even then... That leaves you with, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of horror films. And after that, it was just, it had to be really scary. It doesn't even have to be good. Some of the films in, in this book are not particularly good, but they are all scary, I believe. Yeah, that's it. I mean, as long as it uh, fits on there. Um, I mean, just going back to some of the scare tactics that you mentioned there, um, one of the things that I found really interesting in the book, which, you know, especially for something um, on the entry of The Shining. Now, um, obviously, it's something that is very well um you know looked into and that that mine is is possibly dug to to the point where it's you know really is just wild speculation a lot of the time uh with the shining but i did find um in your entry some uh, information that i wasn't aware of just just the basic things of um, the changes of uh, color of props and mm. you know the um you know even things like the the television not being plugged in which i'm sure has been covered as length in documentaries and and the like um, but yeah, I, just little things like that, which I hadn't even picked up on. And, um, you know, I myself, I, I like to kind of pride myself on notes, little, little bits there. Um, but yeah, I, I just find that, uh, find that fascinating. Were there any other things that you found in, in researching the book that was, 
um, you know, just new information to you? I mean, yeah, endless amounts. One of the things when you write something like this is you don't, when you write about The Exorcist, what hasn't been covered? You know, when you write about The Shining, what hasn't been covered? So it is tricky with those bigger films to find you know, new angles on things. Um, I did find, I did speak to some of the filmmakers involved. If there wasn't great interview material out there, I spoke to them myself. And so I spoke to the guys that made The Blair Witch Project and they gave me some absolute amazing behind the scenes stuff, which I'd just never heard before. Um, Chief in which, I guess I can tell you because it's in the book, uh, Chief of which is that they had someone, they had a friend dressed up in like a white sheet or whatever. It's going to jump out at the, the characters in the Blair Witch in the middle of the night. And there'd be one moment in the whole documentary where you saw this thing and they had, you know, and that would be the moment you'd freeze frame it later on and say, oh, look, this is the moment we see something. Yeah. And then, so they had their friend waiting in like minus 10 degrees. <laughs> he fell in a ditch and had to like drive off because he was freezing cold. And anyway, so he jumps out of the actors and it doesn't show up on the film. They've got, you know, primitive film cameras, primitive digital cameras. And the next day in the edit room, it doesn't show up at all. You can't see this. All of this is for nothing. They're furious. The net result is at no point in the film do you see anything supernatural. You don't see the Blair Witch. And that gives the film its power. There's no one bit where you're like, oh, there's the Blair Witch. But it was all a mistake. They were me you were meant to see something. And that was just pure human error. I absolutely love that story because it just shows how close something is from being a horror classic to just being, you know, a good idea that didn't quite come off. Oh, that's great. It's, I suppose it's the, uh, was it the uh, animatronic one, not animatronic, but the mechanical shark in Jaws all over again. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, uh, the, the patience and it's, it's what you don't see that's important. But uh, obviously it would have been a very different movie if that shark had actually worked on day one. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, speaking of which, uh, I mean, I, I haven't uh, gone from, uh, um, from cover to cover as of yet, but uh, um, one of my personal favourite horror films is, uh, is Session Nine. Um, and now with that particular film, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, but on the DVD, uh, there was some extra footage on there, which was going to be the original cut of the film, uh, which was a, a very different feel, um, basically. I mean, without giving too much away, basically, there was a resident of the, the mental hospital there the entire time, is, is the whole kind of... I mean, that, that sounds quite spoilery, but it's, it's not really in a, in a way. Anyway, I, I won't go into too much detail there. Um, but I did find that if you were to... Like incorporate that it, it would have been very much like a kind of you know late 90s early 2000s like generic horror that would you know turn up on late at night and you, you might think oh I, I forgot about that one um but I think just the the removal of that kind of you know ge generic factor if you if you uh, you know the kind of more obvious really makes it a you know completely different film um and, uh, you know, aside from obviously what you'd uh, discussed with the Blair Witch, I mean, is there any kind of film that, you know, you would like to see? Is, well, you, uh, you're aware of that was kind of more of a happy accident than, a, you know, a fully intended product? That's a really tough question. I mean, I, yeah, I've seen that Session 9 footage. And actually, it's a really awesome film. But it's in the chapter on The Shining. It's there as sort of further viewing Session 9 because they've got quite a lot in common. I think, you know, this is big sort of is it haunted or is it not building that takes over the characters that they're there to do a sort of menial job. It's actually quite a similar setup. And the thing about session nine. It's almost like the, the main, main character or an extra character in itself, isn't it? With both yeah. Of 
And the thing I remember watching when I've the times I've seen Session Nine, and I've always really liked it. But it feels like a film without a center. It feels like a film. It doesn't have an antagonist. It doesn't have like you, you never quite get what was really going on. And actually, the idea that there has been sort of um, deleted scenes and the sort of alternate cuts does make sense because it's a sort of amazing build-up that it just leaves leaves you hanging. I find, and that it does work. But yeah, I'd be really interested to see the, the, uh, another complete version of that film because I do think it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see it folded in. <coughs> the, um, the soundtrack does a does a does a lot, which I think is um, you know it's a, it's a it's a big on uh, atmosphere. But I think uh, I forget what they're called here, the golden it's the golden out here brothers or some, something along those lines. Um, but uh, the the soundtrack really is uh, phenomenal for that film. I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a big. You know, a good good forty percent of uh, what the film delivers, in, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as I'd um, mentioned, with this being Pablo's Vault of Horror, what we'd like to do with um, all of our guests is uh, basically just ask if there was any particular horror film um, that either you think is you know not given enough credit, or maybe seen as like you know rubbish by some people's standards. Or just one that nobody has heard of, or, or doesn't get any sunshine on it at, at any time. Um, I was just wondering if you had any particular film or films in mind. Well, see, I'm not not having been a listener to your show, I don't know what the standard is of unknown films. If somebody's going to say something pretty obvious, or if you're like really deep diving, now what kind of things do you normally get? Well, I mean, it's 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 varied, you know. I've um, I've had I've had some deep cuts in the in the past, but uh, you know, it's you know, there's there's sometimes you know your guilty pleasure, and sometimes I mean, I find uh, with some people that that you know they, they kind of do themselves down a little bit. Uh, you know, I've, I'm trying to think who it was, but somebody mentioned Thirteen Ghosts um, not that long ago, and uh, I, I think that's you know you know it's it's like Ghostbusters off the chain. It's it's really. Uh, um, the special effects and uh, the film in general, I've, I've, I really rate that film, but they were they really had it down as a guilty pleasure. So, uh, but no, I think uh, especially with um, a man of your caliber and with the research that you've done on on this and past books and and the like, uh, I would really like a like a deep cut if you've got one. Okay, I'll pick a deep cut, and if it's not deep enough, tell me and I'll go deeper. Okay. So the, the the film that I've just become obsessed with whilst making this book is called Late Mungo from two thousand and eight which you know it starting to do the rounds a little bit starting to sort of gain a little bit of of love um and it's an australian uh film made by a guy called joel anderson who's never made anything else and it's a fake documentary following a family who lose their daughter and um are haunted by uh, her ghost in various different ways and it's just really cleverly made and really moving and it sounds like every found footage film ever and actually it's really mature and kind of yeah sad it's like it does deal with the different forms of grief also most importantly it's really 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 scary and it's got that kind of lingering scary thing when does you suddenly think mm-hmm. oh hang on oh no and you realize the more you realize the scarier it gets so it demands a few watches yeah well i think it, it, it does that excellent thing of kind of like um giving the audience the impression that uh, they've got it sussed out and um then you, you kind of realize as soon as you're kind of like oh i'm one step ahead here um you realize you're actually you've gone around the wrong corner and you're at a cul-de-sac when you should be like on the on the main high re- uh, high street so it's it's um it, it's it's good in that regard i must say it's uh, i think jed shepherd mentioned that one the producer of host um another such film so i think that was one of his uh 
mentions because you know it doesn't get the uh, recognition where partly because it was quite hard to find until relatively recently i think it's only just i think it's on prime at the moment and uh right. i don't know should i um I'll, I'll fact check this after after the fact but uh no no um, um lake mungo um very good uh very good pick i must say so to, so let's yeah. go deeper. Should we go deeper? Yeah, I'll go, I'll go d- deeper. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be excellent. Okay, there's one. There's a, one of the main films in the book. It's called Angst. It's from 1983, and I found talking to horror critics that not many people have heard of it. Um, it's an Austrian film about a serial killer, and it's got a kind of Henry portrait of a serial killer vibe, but also like a kind of demented art house vibe as well. So while you're seeing this very grisly, very realistic things happening, there's a sort of weird drifty, there's a constant voiceover from a different actor than the killer. But So we're in his head. There's amazing camera work, which is mounted, the camera's mounted on the killer's shoulder. So he just turns and runs away and sort of, commits acts of violence and you're right there with him as if you're sort of you know an angel or a devil on his shoulder watching it happening it's really uh, uh immersive and kind of gives you a really nasty lingering feeling afterwards so that's another that's another great discovery from the book that i really i want to say recommend but it's such a horrible film that i recommend yeah. guardedly but for someone seeking that kind of thing out and you know why would you but if you do this is a really great uh, interesting version of that no, I would say. I mean, from uh, having looked through the book, that was one that jumped out at me. There was there was a couple there which you know, I, you know, hold my hands up that I'm aware of, but I still haven't seen. Um, but uh, I will say that was one which uh, jumped. I've I, I never even heard of that one. So that's uh, it's, it's one, of, one hell of a bad time. <laughs> it's really is. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> I suppose it, it's, it's a bit like it's it's one of those things I often say about um, was it irreversible? It's it's like it's cinematographically it's it's a it's a awesome film it breaks so many boundaries and does so much with with the form and really pushes this and does that and but also it's it's a it's a horrible horrible film and i never want to watch it again yeah. so it's, it's it's one of those i may be one of the few people that have watched angst twice and i think you should watch it once but i yeah, i really sincerely doubt that anyone will bother watching it twice just because it just does that thing of unflinching violence. We're like, this is happening. We're not going to cut. This is happening. You're right there. And you're like, oh, 10 minutes of someone getting killed. And oh, okay. And it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. No, well, that's consider that a recommendation if you wish or consider that a warning. No, no, certainly. I mean, I will say, that, uh, well, no, it's, it's, it's not actually a horror, but it's, it's one of those, um, it's a, it, there's some very horrific aspects in it, a lot of uh, gore, but there's a French um, bank robbery, a bank heist film called Doberman, um, which I, I remember seeing once late late at night on Channel 4 or BBC 2, and uh, it's um, it's a film which I've, I've never heard anybody really reference. I think I, I did some sort of reference to it on Twitter a, a year or so ago, and um, a, a few people have seen it, so I, I didn't just uh, imagine it. But uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous, uh, a, a speeding car, um, a man basically gets uh, his, his face slowly disintegrated against the, uh, the asphalt of uh, the, the, well, the the road as the car speeds along. Uh, and very it's a, it's a very slow and purposeful thing as well. So it's, uh, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of kind of like bullet um, bullet cams and things like this. It's very like kind of best on comic book, but not best on. But uh, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it. So it might be awful, but uh, it, it is... Uh, it's a it's a very uh, very peculiar very very French I yeah. suppose um, not not to sound completely xenophobic because I mean obviously that does sound quite Austrian in regards to uh, Austrian cinema. <laughs> um, so this is what you're here for. You're here to see the action, yes. 
Um, that's the last time I try and do any kind of accent. Um, yeah. I don't know what to say, but yeah, that was, uh, was really yeah, something. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll move on, we'll move on. <laughs> the Austrian embassy on my tail. Um, yeah. Um, now, um, one of the other things we do like to ask uh, anybody who comes on the show is, um, you know, kind of like the horror Mount Rushmore in, in many ways. Uh, you know, there's the interchangeable fifth, but I always find um, you've got your Freddy Krueger, your Michael Myers, your Leatherface, and um, Jason Voorhees, of course, as your four main kind of archetypes. And, you know, I know, you know, equal rights wise that should really involve some sort of lady but I, I do think out of the the kind of pantheon of horror they are the the four kind of go-tos of um you know most people who are bang into horror as well as those who just give it a passing glance um so what i like to ask people is basically out of those four uh you freddie you jason you michael you, you leather thing um one of them you get to keep and you know we get to do more and possibly a, a renewed um picture deal and uh, a whole new revamp or a continuation whatever you would like um but the other three are completely deleted from history they're um cast to the dustbin of uh, history so uh, it would just be you know a question of which one would you keep and which you know by process of um, elimination which ones would uh, would have to go this is actually the easiest question you've asked me all night because it's Jason Voorhees to stay for me just forever. He was my first horror love. And actually there's some thought behind this because although arguably there's better movies in Nightmare on Elm Street series, there's better movies in Halloween and there's better movies in um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I put it to you that Jason has got one, two, four, six, nine and verses are all good to goodish films was mm. freddy it's got one three a new nightmare and versus uh, michael myers has got one four and h2o and leatherface has only got one and two so actually Voorhees wins on points as well as uh, if not personality <laughs> consistency although i will i will say they kind of um do, do turn them out there, there was a certain point where they were kind of literally cranking them out one a year where oh no, yeah. i think that no, and Elm Street's pretty much that. I think uh, I listened to, um, I forget the uh, exact variation of the name now, but it's uh, Matt Gawley and Paul Rust. They do a, a podcast where I think at first they were doing Halloween. Uh, it's in, in, in Gawley We Trust, well, whatever. Uh, but they did a Halloween one, a um, Nightmare, and now they're doing a Nightmare on Elm Street one currently. And there's a Halloween one as well, because one of them's a big uh, nightmare. Uh, uh, sorry, a big uh, Friday the Thirteenth fan, and the other one's a big Halloween fan. So they've done. Uh, they had them on Stitcher Premium, but they just started a series which is completely on their own, which they're releasing just with a, a week delay. Um, which is all the Friday, the, uh, all the Nightmare on Elm Streets, and one of the things that they they kind of accidentally found out is most of the first five films came out within like a calendar year of each other. They were all. It was very much um, yeah. once the first came out that within 18 months the second one then the third one then the fourth one then the fifth one it was very much a production tra uh, train and some of, i mean some and some of those nightmares are really really bad it's like four five and six if my memory, i think i watched them all over a weekend and my memory serves that four and five are just terrible and six is only memorable because it's got the 3d glasses um which is which mm. is you know uh, great in a way but so yeah it's jason for me he was like i, I saw one friday the 13th part six when i was i must have been like 10 and that just that just that was it for me that was me on um in horror for my life so it's 
chasing with my heart, I'm afraid. No, well, that's good. And also, I would say on an emotional level, as, as has been touched on in the past uh, with Jason Voorhees and um, um, and uh, Leatherface, they're out of the four. They're kind of like the the innocence, the put upon innocence of the group. They're they're kind of more, you know, they've, they've kind of been dealt a bad hand and set the wrong path. Whereas the other two could be argued that were wrongs from the start. Um, I mean, especially that Michael Myers. I mean, what? Come on, right. he's had and I mean, especially Freddy Krueger. Like, how, how how are we going to vote for this guy? Like, this guy, so you know, he's a child murderer, perhaps a child molester, depending on which, you know, which sort of version of the of the legend we believe. This guy is not to be. He's surely out. Like, we can't be venerating this kind of villain, can we? No, well, that's it, and that, I must say that is uh, my go-to for anybody who says Freddy Krueger. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, What's the, wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Yeah, that's all right. He haunts people's dreams. What a, what a <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's perfectly unsettled. And it's a, a good poll with um, um, Freddy versus Jason. A uh, recent one that came on Netflix. I thought, oh, I'll, get, I'll give that a try. And uh, it's a lot better than I remember. It was, I like uh, it. I really enjoyed it. <clears throat> it's, it's, I mean, it's an impossible ask to get both of those uh, sort of both of those histories, all those films into the same film. So it's just this mad, overstuffed kind of mess. It's really well directed. It's got some good actors, Catherine Isabel, people like that. I think it's pretty good. It's hard to imagine how they could have done a much better job than that. Well, no, that's it. And apparently from from there, the, the whole intention was, um, I think Peter Jackson had, had done a treatment where they were going to redo Freddy Krueger as um, basically people, he's a, he's a joke and nobody, uh, nobody, well, people believe in him, but they're aware of him to the point where he doesn't have any power if you don't, uh, if you're not scared of him. So people actually take a take a drug to go into the place to beat him up and uh, taunt him and you know uh, terrorize Freddy. And the entire thing was kind of Freddy coming back into power and uh, you know getting the people of Springfield and uh, and Elm Street to, uh, I suppose, it kind of expanded out into into the town as well as the the street. Um, which sounds like a really interesting treatment, but I suppose it 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 would have been odd in a way <laughs> it sounds like an instant treatment but it probably would have been rubbish which is the same with all these things yeah, isn't it <laughs> it's, it's like that alien 3 thing i mean they do have the book out now which i do have the audio book of i should really listen to where they've redone the the, the the original um um script um where it was the, the whole kind of giant wooden moon being pulled by a spaceship manned by monks and the the alien came. I think David Finch was it David Fincher? I think it was yeah. Fincher. Oh, yeah, it was his his treatment on it. Um which sounds amazing, but then you think that does sound like a big ask. You know, I'm I'm a big one for allowing the audience to make their own decisions and not let's not uh, push things and let's not all spell it out. But you know, sometimes you've got to you've got to give them a little bit. I mean, come on. Um, well, anyway, um, I, I just uh, oh, of course, uh, and we can't um, um, go before um, we mentioned the uh, brilliant art in the book. Um, who uh, I believe is it um, uh, Barney? Uh, you, you will have to pronounce the name just so I don't make a mess of it. It's Barney Boduano, and he's done uh, bespoke black and white illustrations for all of the main films. So each chapter's got this like beautifully menacing black and white picture by Barney to introduce it, and. Um, yeah, I, uh, I absolutely love what he's done. And I think it gives the book a real sense of like personality, real sense of menace, 
sometimes when you're putting horror films apart things can get a bit dry in the writing maybe and hopefully not but there's that risk and then these give it a kind of really spectral quality um so yeah no, a visual palette cleanser for each uh, each one and uh, you've got like a very like almost like babadook type of mm. you know if the babadook it expands in the further further releases um the further children's books <laughs> then uh, they covers <laughs> all pages from, from within um, uh, just to be clear this book is not for children <laughs> no no that, that's the, yes that's that shit although to be fair you know if somebody reads that uh, front cover and sees the the, the, uh, the front page and decides to give it to a child it's it's solely on them i think you're clear i think you're you're good um litigious wise i think you're, you're good to know um right um well uh, thank you very much matt i uh, much appreciate it for uh for you coming on and speaking to us here on pablo's vault of horror is there anything you want to plug other than the book of course is there anything you want to plug or anything you're working on now you want to talk about before we go i can't disclose what i'm working on just now but um yeah it's all about the book at the moment it's available in all the good bookshops that hopefully people can go to soon um which we're currently unable to and online in all the places that you would expect to see it. And you can tweet me at, at Matt Glasby or at the book of horror. I'd love to hear what you think if you've read a copy and I'd love to hear if you've seen any scary movies that aren't in there, let me know. So I want to hear about them. No, when I must say, I, I love it. And uh, that every time you, you kind of see one and you think, what, why is this being picked? And then you, as soon as you start reading through, you realise, oh, well, this, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And then you think, well, wait a minute, why didn't he pick? And then you get to the, the section which shows us some other films within this sphere. And you realise, oh, there's that one I was thinking of. Oh, there's that other one I was thinking of. <laughs> it's very well put together in that regard. I mean, I was thinking when, when we, I was doing my very snobbish horror fan of, well, Psycho, when you pick Peep and Tom? I mean, uh, technically that was released first. I mean, I would have gone for Peep and Tom. Oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, joining me here, and um, I'll hand back over to Pablo in the studio. Over to you, Pablo. Welcome back. Oh, that was a lovely chat with Matt and Rob. Um, Matt's book, The Book of Horror, The Anatomy of Fear on Film, is available anywhere they sell books. And uh, Rob Kilburn's book, Tyne and Weird, could be accessed um, if you go to his Facebook page, uh, Tyne and Weird. There's his website, Tyne and Weird, I think it's .com, but uh, do check via the, uh, the Facebook page. And you can also get it through Amazon. Um, he, if you're ordering direct from his website, he's a one-man show, so bear with him. Um, but obviously, if you're at a deadline, you need it for Christmas. Amazon is a good alternative. Uh, but yeah, thank you both uh, to those guys for chatting to me. It's much appreciated. If you want to hear more of Pablo's Vault of Horror, every Wednesday, 10 p.m. till midnight on noradio.co.uk is the best way to find me. And uh, if you go there, you can also go to the Listen Again section of the website and you can download full episodes, including music, for you to listen at your leisure. Um, and basically play like a podcast, although I am expressly told to say it is not a podcast. Uh, Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, hopefully I'll be back once I've got some more interviews under my belt with another episode of Pablo's Vault of Horror, the podcast. I'll see you on the other side. (laughs) 